Lord, thanks so much that you don't leave us on our own. Um, To live for you, as we've just heard with the children, Uh, you fill us with your spirit, and he is with us and he helps us. He is at work in us. He is changing us more into the people that you created us to be. And thank you that you give us your word. And so we pray as we look at it together now, we pray that it would be more than just the um, exercise of understanding, but actually you would speak to us. Soften our hearts, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'd like you please to imagine with me a little boy. Uh, He's not so little now, actually, but life has always been hard for him, actually. It's always been a a rocky um, life that he's had. His family situation for many years has been less than ideal. Um, He thought it was normal life at first, and then he began to compare himself with others and began to realise that it wasn't. It was, if anything, abusive. At times, there were glimpses of fun um, in his life. They were precious, and they were good, and he looks back on them with warmth. But more recently, he began to get caught up in the kind of stuff that he ought not be caught up in, dangerous and damaging type stuff. If you look back to the history of his parents, both, both of them had been abused, and as it often does, that cycle of dysfunctionality continued and continued. It seems impossible to break out of, and sadly, you name it, and he's done it. He started off with the small things, but then he got involved in all kinds of petty crime to, to raise money, to fund their drugs habits, to, to pay for their alcohol, or just simply for the sake of it, because he enjoyed it. And so what happened was the school noticed... And parents started to talk and social services got involved and now he's been taken away and placed into a new family. And against all his instincts, all his protests, all his anger, all his initial tantrums, to be honest, much to his surprise, life is much better now. It wasn't as if there was no fun before. He was introduced to alcohol, and he enjoyed that. He was introduced to the thrill of of crime. He liked the power that he felt as he had over others, the risk that gave him a buzz. But now he realizes he's experiencing a different kind of fun, a new kind of life, the reality of a consistent family, the pleasure of having his own bedroom, the security and structures of people being present for him, reliable, giving him time, giving him attention. And a love that very much feels unconditional. And all in all, he is so very much happier in this new family. Thing is, his his phone has started buzzing. And he started to get texts from his old family again that they're barraging him. They won't stop. Pleading with him that he come back again. Pleading with him to come and help them again. And not just texts, but emails and missed calls. and, And it even feels like people are watching him as well. And he's tempted. It would be a lie to say he wasn't tempted. He remembers the the genuinely good times. He remembers the buzz of that kind of life, the fun, although fun that never lasted and fun with consequences and outworkings, but it's a real battle for him now. Every time his phone buzzes, it's a battle. And I hope you realise that he is hypothetical But the battle really isn't 
In some senses, it's just the kind of battle that Paul describes for us in this next little section of Romans. Do you remember, we're new people. Remember last week, we're in a new realm, under new ownership, with a new life and a new hope. But the pull to our old ways is still there. Remember the image of the emancipated slaves giving freedom, and yet they ended up going back to the old and the familiar. Old ways of doing things, old patterns. And last time we saw we have a new mind. Later in the chapter we'll see we have a new body to come. But now, as he started last week and as the kids were thinking about a moment ago, we're not alone, we have God's spirit living in us. But we're in the thick of the battle, aren't we? Every day, every hour. And so when we get the phone call, Or the text from our old family, from our old way of living, our old ways of doing things, telling us to come back and come back and do what we used to do. Just listen to the flesh again. Listen to the selfish self. When these phone calls keep coming in, Paul says to us in these verses two things. Remember, remember who you now are. And remember that having the spirit means we engage in a new fight And also that having the spirit means we belong to a new family. Okay, so a new fight and a new family. Firstly, a new fight. Living as a Christian means living in a battle. Sometimes maybe we even forget that. And we hear that it all ought to be a breeze and we expect to be better and being a Christian is all about living your best life now. And in one sense that's true, but then when it's hard... We're not sure what our problem is. And in a world where self is king, and even the idea of a battle can sound strange to those around us, well, why don't you just do what you want to do, they say. We need to remember it's a battle, it's a new fight. Have a look down at verse 12 to 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You see, there was a time when it didn't feel much like a battle. For Fred, before he became a believer, it was just the norm. It was just all he knew. And at times there may be moments or inklings that it's not the best thing for us. A bit of, well, I'd love to change, kind of. I'd love to break free, but we're we're powerless to do so. But now, now everything is different. And so God's spirit lives in us now. We know it's wrong now. And so Paul is very plain here. He says, don't listen. I think he says, don't listen, firstly, verse 12, because of who you are. That is, you don't have an obligation to the flesh anymore. But he also says, verse 13, don't listen because of where that life leads now. It leads to death. And the phone keeps ringing. And the texts keep coming and our pockets keep buzzing. And it's our old family, again, wanting us to to come and live with them and do what they do again. They say, do you remember the living? It was fun, wasn't it? It was good. Do you remember the good times? They were great. We can make you happy. We can. We can provide what, what you need. Don't turn your back on us. And your life now it just looks a bit boring, really. It just looks like rules to obey and, and fun not to be had. It 
just looks like God keeping you in your place, squeezing the joy out of life. It's, it's dull. You look a bit dull. Always thinking of others, seriously. That, that's going to bring you joy. Don't turn your back on us, they say. But Paul says, you, you have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh. That's your old family. That's the way you used to do things. That's not you anymore. That family has no say over the real you now. But pockets keep buzzing, don't they? And texts keep coming in and they keep ringing. And over the time, things may get a bit quieter. Maybe you get better at ignoring but it will be a lifelong battle until the day you die when your old flesh is finally done away with and they might promise you life. They might promise you comfort and joy, but you're not obliged to listen, Christian. To follow the flesh, says Paul, the selfish self, however persuasive, however persistent, is a disaster. Because secondly, it will end, end up leading you to death, verse 13. Do you see? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We are to kill our sin. And it's as simple as that. Indeed, it's a matter of life and death. And we think, ah, Paul, just sounds a bit zealous. A bit scared, a bit over the top, maybe. Are you just taking things a bit too seriously? And yet Jesus said, if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for you, your whole body to go into hell. And you see, sin leads to death, and so sin must be dealt with, says Paul. And our problem, of course, is that we get used to sin. We, we get desensitized to it. We just kind of ignore it. We don't notice it anymore. And so when Paul puts it that starkly, or Jesus that starkly, we say, well, how? Come on. How do we deal with this sin, Paul? How do we kill sin, Paul? Because most of us are there with Fred, with our little swords, trying to do it in our own strength. How do we do it? Well, firstly, the verb is an ongoing verb, and so you do it and you keep doing it. It's a go-on-putting-sin-to-death idea. Do it today and do it tomorrow and then do it on Tuesday, and Wednesday as well, and Thursday, and Friday, and don't ever stop doing it, says Paul. Or as Jesus would say, daily we take up our crosses and we follow him. There isn't a day when we don't do it. Imagine yourself in your mid-80s, 90s. You will then be putting to death the sinful nature on a daily basis. You will then still be killing your sin, if you're still here with us. seems to me often the problem with our sin-fighting, our putting to death, is it's a bit like our back garden when we arrived in Oxford. When we arrived here, the bottom line was it was a total mess. There were brambles everywhere. It was overgrown. It was disgusting. And it needed a whole lot of work doing to it. Thank you to Jack for helping, by the way, with that. But anyway, truth be told, for the first few years, we, we simply tried to kind of keep on top of it a bit. We did a bit of clearing. We did a bit of sorting. 
But there were some massive weeds and thorns, and they looked a bit ominous and like hard work. And so we trimmed them back. We should have ripped them out. But ripping it out is hard work, isn't it? It's painful. Trimming it back is much more manageable, less exhausting. You get less sweaty. And things looked respectable for a few years. It looked okay. But then they all grew back again, of course. And Isn't that our lives? We've, we've trimmed stuff back and it looks respectable and okay. People on the outside looking in, looks all right, mostly, unless the mask slips. And we say, well, I've not murdered anyone. Come on, and stop judging me. And Jesus says, but, but what about that hatred in your heart that means you rip that person apart in your thoughts? You've just trimmed it back. You've not killed it. And maybe we say, well, I've not committed adultery. I've been faithful to my spouse. And Jesus says, but... But hang on, what about those thoughts? What about the way you look at them? What you think about them? And we say, I don't really covet what they have. No, I've got no real need for a Bentley or a house on Boar's Hill like that, really. And Jesus says, but don't you envy them? You envy how stuff has turned out for them, their salary, their spouse, their success, whatever it might be. And you see what we're like? We, we know we're to put sin to death, but really, we, we kind of quite like it. Really, we rather like just being respectable and things looking okay, just trimming it back. And Paul says, do battle with it. Kill it. Kill your sin and keep killing your sin, says Paul. And we say, how? that The roots are so deep. When I'm honest, when I look inside, I see that. And our pockets keep buzzing and the texts keep coming in and our phone keeps ringing and the emails are constant. And to be honest, when push comes to shove, we're, we're fairly tempted. Did you see the answer in verse 13? Again, the kids were thinking about it. How do we kill our sin? We do it by the Spirit. You see, we're not there with a little polystyrene sword. We have Ali with a lightsaber by his spirit. The spirit comes. You see, the bottom line is on our own, we just can't do it, but we're not on our own. You see, we have to put it to death. It takes effort from us. It is hard work from us, but we're not doing it in our own strength. We do it in his strength. How do we kill our sin? By his spirit. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, which I know a number of you will be, you will know that this idea of, of putting to death our flesh, our sinful nature, our selfish self, is not a new one from Paul. Actually, back in chapter 6, Paul has already listed the kind of things that God requires of us. So, I'm flip back, if you like, to verse 12. Paul has already said to the Romans, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. I think what's new though in chapter 8 is we, he begins to explain the means by which we can do that. And it's by God himself coming in and living in us and helping us. 
It's the lightsaber. And you're in the back garden again. And, and the thorns are enormous, and we're sweaty, we're covered in scratches. There's a whole pile of weeds and green stuff to put in the brown box. It's going to be collected in 10 days, you'll be okay. It's, it's not perfect, it's not going to win any prizes, the back garden, but it looks much better, it's much more respectable. And then you sit down for a cup of tea and a biscuit. And by the time you look back up again, you can't believe it, it's grown back. And there's a ring at the front doorbell and a friend comes over and says, have you tried this stuff? And it's a tin of weed killer. And they say it gets right down to the roots. It's extraordinary. You might need to use it every once in a while, but it's good stuff. It actually helps to kill it. And you see, by the Spirit, we can have victory in our battle against sin as we kill it. Of course, it'll be a daily thing, a bit by bit by bit thing, a, a lifetime of adventure thing until we're out of these bodies. But Paul says we can have growth now. You can put to death the misdeeds of the body now by his spirit. There's a paradox, isn't there? Did you, did you notice it as it was read? That those who live according to the flesh will die, but those who put to death the deeds of the body will live. This is not an optional battle for you, friend. <laughs> Ah, you know, that's not really for me, thanks. I'm not that keen, actually. <laughs> this is just for the kind of superstar Christians there. But no, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, which I take it is kind of ongoing, deliberate, anti-God living, it's, it's happily living for the selfish self the whole time. Paul says it's very serious. It, it's very dangerous. It leads to death. Death as in separation from the God of life. So firstly, having the spirit means we engage in the new fight. But secondly, it means we belong to a new family. You're on the bus and the phone goes and, and you see who it is. But you know, you pick it up anyway. It's your old family, and it's the same message. Come, 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 come on, come and enjoy life. Come, come to the party. It's so much better over here, seriously. Do you remember? You remember the good times? Do you remember the fun? Do you remember all we used to do? And it's the same old story, but this time, this time you're, you're tempted. Now, Paul says, though, you are part of a new family now. In fact, you have a new father now. Put the phone down on them. Remember who you are. Remember who your family is now. Let me read verse 14 onwards. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. So who are these children of God? Well, firstly, verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And what does that mean? Well, again, notice the four at the start of verse 14. It, it's those back in verse 13 who have offered themselves as instruments of righteousness. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. To be led by the Spirit there in verse 14, though, doesn't mean to be guided. It's not life. It's not the sort of daily decisions type stuff. That's not what's going on. It's being, it's being controlled, being governed by the Holy Spirit, as if he, he's in the driving seat, causing you to live for him, to obey him, to put him first now, to not sin now. It's not so much the idea of sort of guidance leading, but rather directed. He's living with him as boss. And so put the phone down. Don't listen to them anymore. Hang up on them. You are the children of a new father now. You're part of the new family. Do things differently now. You don't need to join in. And we're not at the bottom of the family structure as, as slaves who have no rights or standing. No, he says, because we trust in Jesus, so we are united to him. We are in him, as we thought about in 8 verse 1. And so we are heirs with him as well. And our standing in the family is not based on how good or, or lovely or deserving or, or what kind of week we've had or how many quiet times we've had or whatever it might be for you, those ways you measure your sort of spiritual maturity. But simply it's how good and how lovely he is. And because Jesus is so great, as we, as we trust him and put our, our faith in him and, and live for him, it says it's as if we are sons. Verse 15, there's, there's sonship. Now, three things to be clear on regarding sonship. First thing to say is he uses that word deliberately. What do we mean by sons? For some of us, there may be kind of hackles slightly rising. It's, it's grating because we're women um, or because we're not wanting to exclude women. And we say, well, how can I be a son? That makes no sense at all. Is, is Paul being sexist here? Or is this not something the translator should have smoothed over and dealt with slightly better? No, I think the language of sonship is right. And it's preserved because in the culture when Paul was writing, the son was the heir. He was the one to inherit. So this title of being a son is trying to help us see the status and position and standing that we all now have in Christ. There's actually a little footnote, helpfully, I think, at the bottom. Um, F there, if you have a look down on page 1135. But you see, you're adopted into the new family and you don't get the smallest bedroom and you don't get everyone's leftovers, and you don't have to wear hand-me-downs the whole time, your new father says, come and see what you have. It's brilliant. It's extraordinary. And the phone rings. And they're longing for you to come back. Come and join the party. Paul says, remember what you have now. Remember who you are now. You have a father who loves you. And you're a co-heir with Jesus now. Second thing to be clear on regarding sonship is what exactly are we heirs of, verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And this has particularly struck me this week as I've chewed over and prayed over it again. It's partly the idea of being an heir, it's partly that we inherit God's promised blessings. So what Jesus won on the cross, we enjoy now is ours, what what Jesus won on the cross that we'll enjoy in the future, in the finally consummated kingdom, that will be ours then. But I think from the grammar here, it's more than that. 
To be heirs of God, as Paul puts it here, means that in a sense we inherit God. We get him. He is the prize. Which means the best thing about the new heavens and the new earth will not be the lack of sickness or death or hatred or sin, although that will be astounding and beautiful. It means the best thing about the new heavens and the new earth will not be the chance to see loved ones in Christ whom we miss and we cherish, though that will be extraordinary and good. It will not even be these, not having these bodies of, of flesh Bodies that that sin and are anti-God, although without them it will be liberating and glorious. Finally and foundationally, the best thing about the new heavens and the new earth will be that we get him. He is our glorious inheritance. He is the prize. It starts now with that relationship restored. It, It starts with his Holy Spirit living in us now. But that is just the taster of what's to come. We get him. We are heirs of God. Listen to a man called um, John Piper that some of you will have heard of on this. He says the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savouring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. You can't see and save a God as supremely satisfying while you are full of rebellion against him and he is full of wrath against you. The removal of this wrath and this rebellion is what the gospel is for. That's something what's going on in 8 verse 1. He continues, The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savouring it as our highest treasure. Behold your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. Do you see, when our sin is removed, and so when his wrath is removed, so we get to enjoy him forever, the relationship that we were made for, true freedom, that is where it's all going. And that would be a great place to end a sermon. For me to say, let's pray. Warm, inspiring, hopeful, good, eyes fixed ahead to the hope, the prize to come. But actually it's not where Paul's thoughts end in this little section for this morning because there's a thorny condition perhaps attached in 17. Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So in terms of sonship, just thirdly and briefly then, what does sonship look like? It means like Jesus, we share in his sufferings. And we'll be here next week as well. Paul's just starting off this new thought. It's kind of a hinge where the chapter turns next. But you see, although we've been adopted into the new family and we don't listen to the old texts and the old calls and the old emails from the old family that did us such harm, if... If we can stretch the analogy a little bit too far, what if living in this new amazing family it is good and it's so good, but actually it's really hard as well? 
What if being part of this new family that was so good actually set you against the rest of the world such that you suffered for being a member of this new family? Maybe we think, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because that is how Paul ends our little section. You see, just as Jesus, our brother, our co-heir, the one whom we love and we follow, just as he suffered, as he obeyed, Well, Paul says, so must we. That is the path that we must walk, says Paul. And if you're wondering whether it's worth it, you need to come back next week. Paul will tell us why, despite suffering, it is worth being part of the new family. Why we must not go back to the old family. And why we must keep trusting him. Let's pray. Lord, if, we're, if we would call ourselves believers this morning, we will each know something of the reality of that battle. The reality of those texts calling us back to our old way of doing things. And so we thank you that we have your spirit living in us. We confess how easily we try and engage in that battle in our own strength, do it by ourselves, rather than looking to you, rather than praying, rather than using the power that you've given us. Thank you too that your spirit means we know we're part of a new family. By your spirit we cry, Abba, Father, Help us, please, this week. Help us when we know we're in that battle. Help us to remember the means we have to battle. And help us, please, to remember who we are in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.